Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Renegade Blitz Podcast, a podcast for Steelers fans by Steelers fans. Follow us on Twitter at Renegade Blitz, read articles on RenegadeBlitz.com, and like us on Facebook. With the Super Bowl in the rearview mirror, we're looking forward to the NFL 2021 draft, but we have to have a special interview with a person who's done a book on one of the great figures in Pittsburgh's history. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the Renegade Blitz. I'm Ty Polk. Joined by Chris Ward. Glad to have you here with us. And we've been mentioning his name across some of the interviews that we've had on the Renegade Blitz over the past season. And now that Bill Nunn has finally been inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, we thought of none better time than to have him on. We're joined by the author of The Color of Sundays, the secret strategy that built the Steelers dynasty, Andrew Conti. He's currently the director of the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. Andy, thanks for coming on with us, and it's amazing. This time last year, I was producing your podcast, and now you're on one that I host with an old Point Park graduate. Yeah, I'm so excited to be with you guys. It's such an honor to have uh, two former students reach out to you and say, like, hey, we're doing this thing, and will you be part of it? So I'm I'm glad to, to be with you guys. It's good to see you. And uh, I would say that the title of that book is a bit of a tongue twister. So you got through it, though. We talked to Ryan Scarpino, a former PR specialist for the Steelers in our last podcast, and he told us stories about his first interactions with Bill Nunn. He described them as relatively brief interactions but he could tell he was an important person in the history of the Pittsburgh Steelers. How much did you know about him before you started writing this book? I didn't, I didn't know anything about none from the beginning. I, I was having lunch with uh, Mark Hart, who's on the business side for the Steelers organization. We were over at the Steelers headquarters and my, my book breakaway about the penguins had just come out and it was a bestseller. And Mark was like, you should do a book on Bill Nunn. And I was like, who never heard of him. And he's like, oh, you got to hear this guy's story. And then he started telling me more and more about it. And I was like, yeah, that's a great story. I really want to do it. And then I tried reaching out to none. I, I called him, left messages. I sent him a personal handwritten note. He wouldn't return my phone calls. Uh, and then I went to, I was fortunate. I, I knew uh, Kevin Colbert a little bit, the, the general manager. So I reached out to him. I was like, hey, that's what I'm thinking about doing. He's like, that's a great idea. And he leaned on him. And then I knew uh, the, the ambassador Rooney, Dan Rooney, the, you know, who was the owner of the team at that point. And I also talked with him and he also wanted the book. So those two guys reached out to none and convinced him to meet with me the first time. And even when we got together the first time, none was like, you're not doing a book on me. And uh, I was like, <laughs> you know, it was, a, it was a negotiation and he, he just was so humble. He didn't want, he, he didn't want an undue share of attention on himself. Um, but, you know, but in reality, there was a lot that was due to him. And, and so I was glad that, what I convinced him ultimately was that, you know, if we, that if we didn't do the story then and we didn't talk about it and I didn't record some interviews with him that 
it was a good chance that that was going to be lost to history. And, and I think that ultimately convinced him. And then the other part was that I, I told him that I, the book would not be just about him, but it would be about, um, you know, the whole broader uh, scope of things. And, and I know some Steelers fans were a little disappointed because I, I go into a lot of the civil rights history that was going on at the same time in the, the 1950s and 60s. But for me, that was an essential part of the, the book. And the, the other part, you know, before coming to the Steelers, Nunn was a reporter for the Pittsburgh Courier. And uh, in the book, the Courier is almost like a character for a big, big chunks of it, because, uh, you know, the, the Courier, for those who don't know, is at the time, you know, Second World War after that, it was it was really the nation's black newspaper. We, they had bureaus all across the, the country and uh, did a lot of important work. And it was important for me to include that in the story as well to show that, um, you know, the what the courier had been and what none had meant to the courier as well as the Steelers. There are many words to describe the book, but perhaps the most impactful word is uh, timely. As you mentioned in the acknowledgments, uh, acknowledgments uh, section, some people you talked to in making the book, Earl Lloyd, uh, Bob Wilson, Elsie Greenwood, and none himself died while making uh, your book. How, how important was getting the, these stories in and did any of uh, their passions change the way you wrote uh, the colors of Sundays? Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I for a while I started to feel like the Grim Reaper. I was like, everyone I talked to, I would do these interviews, and then a few months later they were dead. Um, Bill Nunn, I talked to uh, the day before he suffered a stroke. He was still he was eighty nine years old. He was still going into work at Steelers headquarters. Um, they were uh, getting ready for the draft that year. I think it was two thousand fourteen. And talked to him the day before, and he said, "I got gotten to the point in my reporting where I needed to know more about his personal life, like his." how he met his wife and, you know, the fact that they had kids and all these things. And he's like, ah, everybody's born, everybody dies and half the stuff in between you try to forget. And, uh, and then the next day he suffered a stroke and, and, and then died a week later. And it, it was hard for me. I didn't, I don't think I, I realized until he was gone, how much, how much he had come to mean to me that we had been spending time together talking about his stories and, and listening to the things that, he had accomplished and his perspective on the world and you know we'd become friends and uh, when he was gone I, I set aside the, the book project for at least six months I just couldn't work on it and but he lived in the the, the upper hill district and there's a, a big blue water tower that's right across the street from his home and everywhere I went in the city you know, if I was in Mount Washington, at that point I was working at the Tribune Review from, so from my office, I could see this blue tower everywhere I went. And uh, it was a reminder to me, like I needed to finish that story. And uh, I'm so glad that I did. Uh, I, I would say too, that Nunn's family was, they were, they were suspicious of me when I was, when he was alive, because they were like, who's this reporter coming around, asking questions, spending time with Nunn, they all called him Nunn, even his wife called him Nunn spending time with none in the basement and uh, cause we had a game room. And, and then when he died, you know, I went to the funeral and paid my respects and they still were like, who's this guy. And then, you know, a year later or so I went back to them with the first manuscript and before I sent it off to my publisher, I showed them the, the first draft and um, they were so grateful that he had told his stories and we had recorded them and we have, we have a great relationship. Um, his wife, Francis actually died the day that, uh, they found out that he was a finalist for the Hall of Fame. And, uh, but, you know, I still talk with his, his daughter. There was always a groundswell of support for Nunn's induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. 
With the induction of Donnie Shell last year, it felt like none was on the cusp of finally getting the nod, and it finally happened the night before Super Bowl 55. What are your thoughts on his induction, and have you talked to any members of the Nunn family since the announcement? Yeah, so I talked to Nunn's daughter, Linnell, the, it was a couple of days before the announcement, and uh, they were super excited about it. And then we texted back and forth the day after the announcement, and uh, she, she just, again, you know, just they, they've just been so great about um, acknowledging the the book as, as a way to you know preserve and 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 to introduce Nun's legacy to, to more people. Shell really epitomizes what makes Nun so special because, like you mentioned, he was uh, undrafted free agent. You know, and there were there were so many players that Nun found late in the draft. You know, and, and the thing was at the time that the NFL all the teams knew that there were talented players in at the historically black colleges and universities, but they just, the white scouts didn't have, they didn't feel comfortable going on campus. They didn't know how to navigate the campus community. They just didn't understand that world. And, you know, none had already been there for more than 20 years as a, you know, as a reporter for the courier. And so he really understood and he was able to, to see players that the, the other scouts couldn't see. Um, but the case with Donnie Shell and, and Sam Davis was another, and uh, Glenn Edwards was the. I think those are the three, um, the three undrafted free agents that went on to win ten Super Bowls among them, and and now Donnie Shell's you know going into the Hall of Fame, uh, and he'll go in the same time as none, uh, thanks to COVID, the fact that they didn't have the inductions last year. Um, I, I think it just it just underscores how important is because they were these guys that just wouldn't have had a chance to play otherwise. With the social justice initiatives by the NFL, especially in the Super Bowl, and really over the past year with the death of George Floyd being the turning point, how important is it that none get his honors, especially after these big statements by the NFL and its players. And you mentioned George Floyd and the, the racial awareness that's going on in the NFL. I, you know, we really saw it on Super Bowl Sunday, you know, the, the, before the Super Bowl aired, there was, there were many uh, attempts to, to, to take a pause and, and to be deliberate about talking about race. Um, but, you know, the NFL still has a long way to go in terms of uh, getting more diversity. Uh, and, and honestly, it's, it, when we talk about diversity in the NFL, it's really about uh, black people, right? Getting more black people into the front office, uh, you know, general managers and scouts and, and owners. Uh, and, and that's something that the NFL still has to work on. And, you know, it's clear that without none's impact, there, there would be no Steelers dynasty of the 1970s. The, the Steelers were perennial, perennial losers in the 1960s and really, you know, for their entire history what, uh, since they were created in 1933. And people were starting to know about none's black college All-American team more at that time in the 60s. So uh, Dan Rooney offered Bill Nunn a job with the Steelers scouting department in 1967, accepted the role as, as a, a part-time position, and he was hired full-time in 1969 when Chuck Noll became uh, head coach. Uh, what was Nunn's original reaction when Rooney wanted him to join the Steelers? So the first thing I want to say is whenever I, that was the only time that Dan Rooney pushed back at me. I said to him, uh, you know, the Steelers were terrible before, uh, you know, before none came along. He's like, we weren't terrible. We were only mediocre. Uh, so, you know, but the reality is they had only been to the playoffs one time uh, before that. And, uh, you know, and, and they had lost. Um, but I think in terms of, uh, you know, none's impact uh, at that point, you know, just, uh, 
like, like you were saying, they, they wouldn't have had those, uh, you know, they wouldn't have had those successes. We wouldn't be talking about the super Steelers because, uh, uh, you know, the, he was able to find players that, that they, they just couldn't find. Um, but whenever Dan Rooney, what happened was the courier was having these, um, the courier did a, a black college all America team every year. And that was Nunn's job. He traveled like 12,000 miles around the country, identifying these players, watching as many games as he could. And he'd come back and he would compile this list. And then in the 1960s, Nunn got this idea that he would start bringing all those players to Pittsburgh for a big banquet each year. And so they, it was sponsored by, I think by RC Cola and it was held at the, uh, the Hilton in, in Pittsburgh, which was, uh, which is now what the, it's something else. Uh, but it's right there at the point. And it was this glitzy affair. And one year they had, um, Muhammad Ali came in and, uh, you know, he, he was in town for something and he came through and he came up to the stage and, you know, any of you guys want to take a swing at me? And, you know, no, none of them did. Um, but it was this really big celebrity event and the Roonies were part of, and the Steelers were part of sponsoring the, the event and the Roonies, realized after several years that they were like why don't we know about these guys like we don't know these players and and so father and son art you know the the founder of the team and his son dan got together and said you know we should bring this guy in and so dan reached out to him and and uh they their offices were at the roosevelt hotel in downtown pittsburgh it's right across from where um heinz hall is now and none came in and, and dan rooney said hey we want to hire you and none said no I'm not interested. You know, you, you, you didn't like it when you wouldn't let me sit in the press box when I first started covering the team. You wouldn't let me, you, you've never asked me for my opinion before. You never paid attention to uh, my picks in the courier, not interested. And uh, Dan to his credit said, no, no, we're, you know, we're sincere. We really, not only, we don't really, not only do we want you to come in and scout the, the black colleges, we want you to just come in and be a scout for all, all the players, you know, so it wasn't just black players. He was scouting all the, all the schools and and they he said you know we're really sincere about it and to convince him but then um, none finally when he made up his mind said yeah I'll take the job but I, I need a year to uh, to wind things down at the courier and so not you know instead of two weeks notice he gave him uh, fifty two weeks notice and without none the Steelers don't find players like John Stallworth Mel Blunt L C Greenwood Ernie Holmes Dwight White and Donnie Shell all who played at HBCUs. Stallworth, Blunt, and Shell are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It really makes you wonder why he wasn't nominated to the Pro Football Hall of Fame earlier. It's long overdue, but we're really glad that he's finally received this honor. You know, part of it was because he was so humble. You know, he didn't he didn't go around beating his own chest. Uh, the other part is that scouts are sort of invisible, right? You know, scouts do this role that they travel the country. It's it's in many ways, a, a thankless kind of job. They're, they're on a road a lot of the, the time and uh, they're looking at these players and, you know, and what they do is behind the scenes, we, you know, we see the results of it on, on draft day, whenever, you know, the, there's all, now there's all this fanfare around, um, you know, the, the players who were selected in the draft, but you never see the scouts behind the scene. I mean, the only thing that you ever get to see is, uh, you know, pre-COVID days, you got to see sort of the, the war rooms that the, the teams had where they, you know, and, and so certainly the scouts were in there. Um, and then, you know, of course, this year we saw into people's living rooms, uh, you know, as they were making the picks. But even then, you don't you don't know who those guys are. And so um, they, they work in anonymity. I, I think of uh, the first Steelers Super Bowl and uh, 
it was a Tulane stadium in New Orleans. And it was supposed to be at the Superdome, but the Superdome wasn't done yet. And so they're at Tulane College, and I guess Tulane University, and uh, you know, none sitting up in the the stands. He's sitting up on the bleachers. He's not. He's not on the field. He's not part of you know anything that goes on that day. But of course, everything that happened on the field was a result of the work he had done quietly on his own in the you know the months before, years before. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Kevin Colbert was on the WDVE uh, morning show, and uh, he talked about how uh, you know none just can name drop people like Roberto Clemente, Joe Lewis, Jackie Robinson, and enter- entertainers also like uh, Lena Horne. Uh, you know him being a journalist uh, at the, the Courier. Then, uh, do, do you have any uh, uh, st- uh, stories about him uh, having interactions with those uh, you know stars like Clemente, Joe Lewis, and, and Jackie Robinson? Yeah, for sure. So he because. Uh, Nunn's father had been at the Courier before him. His, his father was actually the managing editor of the Courier, and uh, his name is also, you know, obviously Bill Nunn. He was Bill Nunn Sr. And, uh, you know, it was, it was at a time when things were segregated because of the Jim Crow laws in, in the United States. And so when sports figures and entertainers came to Pittsburgh, they couldn't stay in the downtown hotels. They would oftentimes uh, show up in the Hill District. They would turn up at the Courier's offices. Sometimes they would stay with the nuns in their home. And uh, so Bill Nunn would, he grew up with, he would come home and these guys would be in his living room. You know, uh, Joe Lewis, the boxer would be there in his living room and uh, and Fetch It, who was the the first uh, Hollywood star, black Hollywood star to make a million dollars. These people were just part of his life. And then when Nunn grew up, you know, and continued to live in the Hill District, yeah, he became very close with uh, Roberto Clemente. Um, Clemente was in a, a difficult situation. He'd never thought of himself as black until he came to, uh, you know, first Canada and then to, to Pittsburgh. And when he gets here, you know, people will say, well, you, you know, you're black. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. Um, and then, but of course he spoke Spanish. And so the, the African-Americans in, in the United States were like, he's not one of us. You know, he doesn't speak English. He's, he speaks Spanish. And so he was really isolated. And uh, his story, his whole separate story, which I've, I've done a children's book on, but it's really inspirational. I mean, what he, what he did for, um, Latino ballplayers is amazing. Um, but yeah, Nunn and Clemente became friends. And uh, my one of my favorite moments was after the um, 1960 World Series. And they're in the, the locker room. Nunn goes in and he sees Clemente in the, the sort of the corner. Everybody's celebrating. Clemente's just there like getting dressed. He's like, well, you know, what's going on? Well, you know, Clemente was upset that he hadn't been named MVP. Um, he'd had a great series, uh, but they didn't pick him. And he was like, you know, because I'm a Spanish speaking black man, I didn't get picked. And uh, which, you know, you can make all kinds of arguments about whether that's valid or not. Um, but so he says to Nun, you know, can you drive me to the airport? And uh, so Nun's like, yeah, all right. And uh, so they uh, they sneak out the the back door of the, the Forbes field and um uh, Clemente's carrying in his arm a trophy that he got from, uh, he was named the, the fans MVP uh, for his, you know, his work throughout the season. And uh, when he walks outside, there are all these fans there and they mob around him and they're just, you know, they throng around him. They all wanted to be close to him. And uh, by the time they get to the car, then it takes them forever to walk down the block to get to the car. And by the time they get there, Clemente's just beaming and, you know, so excited about it. And um, so you know, none as a sports reporter in those days, you know, he had that kind of access and he, it wasn't just about having access, but he had real relationships with these people. 
You mentioned in your book that none would sleep at the house of a university president or head coach at an HBCU school in the segregated South. What was it like for none traveling in the South at that time? And do you have any stories of the obstacles that he faced? Yeah. So none was was clear to me, too, that, um, yes, while he ran into Jim Crow laws and, and segregation throughout the South, that there was also segregation here in Pittsburgh. And there were lots of things that, you know, he ran into situations where where things were segregated here. But, you know, as he traveled throughout the South, um, there were a couple of things. I mean, one, I said, you know, when you, you know, was it was it difficult? Like you said, sometimes he would end up, you know, he would stay with the college president or the athletic director or the coach. You know, he'd, he'd stay in their homes because, like you said, the HBCUs were there and there weren't a lot of hotels. And, you know, but he was like, no, it was perfect. Like, we, why would I want anything different to that? You know, there was this whole whole universe on, on each of these campuses that um, was set aside and it was it was just as a universe for black people where they could, you know, be careful, you know, they could do their own thing and and not have to worry about dealing with the, the, the racist whites that they would encounter outside of that. Um, he, I mean, he talked about just, you know, all the things that you hear about the, the, the terrible things about traveling through the South, uh, you know, at that time and being stuck, you know, on buses and, and falling asleep and um, just, to me, it was remarkable. Like, not only did he travel so far, but he did it at a, at a time and at a, a place when he was under duress the whole time. And uh, Nunn was an inaugural member of the Black College uh, Hall of Fame in, uh, or Black College Football Hall of Fame in 2010 with names like Jerry Rice, Walter Payton, and legendary Grambling State University head coach Eddie Robinson. Do you think that's when people really started to know about Nunn's story? It seems like over the last 10 years, people started to really know Baltimore, thanks to your book and some Steeler beat writers and Jim Trotter, who has been a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee since 2007 and is currently the president of the Pro Football Writers of America. I feel like the people who 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 knew were the ones who, you know, they, they've always known about none. Uh, the guys who, you know, who who are intimately involved with football, who knew football, um, certainly knew about, you know, the people who had come up through the black colleges. They, they knew the impact of none as a reporter and as a scout. Um, it's just the rest of us, you know, the, the rest of us as Steelers fans, you know, waking up to his story and uh, you know, people who are like a, a step or two removed from football. Um, and, you know, thanks for saying that. I'm one of the, the joys for me has been, uh, you know, sharing his story to a wider audience. Jim Rooney outlines in his book on his dad, Dan Rooney, how the Steelers failed to draft an uh, HBCU player in the two years before Nunn joined the club full-time in 1969, but selected a total of 14 over the next three years. Uh, from 1969 through 1975, the Steelers drafted 25 players from HBCUs, more than any other NFL club and twice the league average uh, per Rooney. Uh, can you talk about, um, you know, the Steelers players on that team and, like, uh, come in most of them from uh, all black colleges in the South. Uh, and uh, it seemed like they really trusted none, uh, like, like the Donnie shell story. Like he, he was undrafted free agent and he was told by his college coach to go to the Steelers be, uh, because of none. Yeah. I mean, I think the the story that comes to my mind, there are a couple, but, but one is the, the story of Elsie Greenwood, which we kind of hinted at before, you know, he's drafted the same year as me and Joe Green. They both become, you know, half of the, the Steelers front four steel curtain defense. And, and, and while, you know, everybody knew that uh, Joe Green was going to be a star, I mean, he was picked fourth overall. He, he went to a, a 
you know, not an HBCU. But Elsie Greenwood was picked like 200 something. You know, he, he was way back in the draft. People didn't know who he was. And and that just epitomizes, uh, you know, the, the the impact that Nam was able to have to, to find these guys. And, uh, you know, like you talked about, when you uh, go back and you look at the numbers of the the Super Bowl winning teams that they had, the, the percentages of players that uh, one, you know, that were black players on the team um, was significant. And then among the black players, a big chunk of them had come from HBCUs. And so, you know, that's, that's really when you start to, to get a, um, a measure of non success is when you look at those kinds of uh, figures. Oh, okay. 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 Uh, you know, speaking back uh, Culver on the WWE morning show uh, a few weeks ago, he, he mentioned that none was so much more than just the HBCU guy. Uh, that that was especially no doubt, but none could go into any college. You know, he mentioned USC, uh, Michigan, Ohio State, and sit in and evaluate players and talk to coaches as if he was sitting in his uh, living room or in his office. Uh, and Colbert mentioned that he was unique in that manner. And I, I want to know, do you think his career as a journalist helped him become such a great uh, scout and uh, evaluator? I'm sure it was, was significant, his role as a journalist. I mean, the other part was that he had a way of seeing sort of uh, – each man's spirit, you know, when most scouts go out, they're looking at just the, the numbers, you know, and they're trying to figure out like, you know, how fast does he run the 40 and how high can he jump and all these things. And, and none of, you know, he certainly relied on that. But in addition to that, he also tried to measure a man's character and his heart. And, and that was the thing that, that stood out. And it was also a thing that he was concerned about, you know, with scouts now is that uh, there's kind of an echo chamber around, you know, these players, when none was scouting, oftentimes he'd go out on the road for, you know, 10 days and he would just be gone. And he'd be by himself and he would have, you know, wouldn't obviously didn't have the internet, didn't have a cell phone, maybe would check in with his office and his wife, maybe wouldn't, uh, you know, and he was just out there looking at these players and trying to, to evaluate them on his own. Um, and what happens now is that, you know, the scouts are out there and they're evaluating these players, but they're also hearing at the same time, you know, who's here, who's got this person on their draft list here and who's got this and who's got that. And it's harder to, to identify those players. Um, you know, but the challenge is, you know, finding people like, uh, you know, Tom Brady, sixth round quarterback, right. That, you know, stands out that, you know, and he went to a big school. It wasn't like it was a big secret. Um, but you know, every team passed on him at least five times. With you writing this story, it feels like this is a question we have to ask you. Do you plan on going to Canton when none gets inducted into the pro football hall of fame this August? It's going to be a big weekend for the Steelers, right? I mean, you got Steelers playing the Cowboys in the, the preseason game. You got coach Cower going in Troy Polamalu. Uh, who else? I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss some of them. Nuns going in, of course, Donnie shell and uh, Fanica. Alan Fanica. Yeah. So it's going to be a big, big Steelers weekend in, in Canton. And I uh, would love to be there. Uh, we'll have to see. I haven't got my plans together yet, but uh, should, should be a big time for Steelers fans. We'll get you out to Canton. We'll start a hashtag or something. Hashtag get Andy to Canton. That'd be an awesome road trip. I think. Yeah. The three of us is to, uh, I'll stand out in my driveway and wait for Chris to pull up in his car and we'll go. So. <laughs> and Andy, once again, we let off with the interview talking about how you, how I did podcast for you. We really want to thank you for uh, kind of being, I guess, in a way like the groundwork for this podcast, working on that stuff in the pandemic with, you know, from Among Neighbors all the way out to planned podcasts with, you know, the Healing Center and other things like that. Uh, 
doing this stuff, like doing it off of Zoom, it was built off of those couple last couple months at the CMI. So again, thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank thank you for also being our teacher in Point Park whenever we were coming up. You know, I'm, I'm, I just want to say sincerely, I'm, I'm proud of both you guys. I mean, you you both were, um, I, I think you're grinders, you know, when you were, uh, you know, when you were in my classes at Point Park University, you, you stood out for putting in hard work. Uh, I can think of instances in, for both of you where you, you had moments that you, you know, you, you made real progress, you, you put in the work to be there. And so uh, I'm really proud of you for, you know, grinding it out now, figuring this out doing this podcast, keeping it going, making sure you're still telling stories. No one's going to stop you from doing it. And, uh, you know, whatever I can do to support you and, and be in your corner, please let me know. Absolutely. And that's Andrew Conti, the author of The Color of Sundays, The Secret Strategy That Built the Steelers Dynasty, and also the director of the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. Follow him on Twitter at Andrew Conti. And of course, be sure to buy The Color of Sundays on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere else you can find books. Andy, thanks for coming on the show again. You're welcome anytime. And as the offseason continues to roll on, the Renegade Blitz will cover all news in terms of free agency and what's coming up with the draft or the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's all for us now. For Chris Ward, I'm Ty Polk. Thank you for tuning in to the Renegade Blitz. Thank you for listening to the Renegade Blitz podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Renegade Blitz. Read articles on RenegadeBlitz.com and like us on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, YouTube, iHeart, and Spotify.